I wonder if you remember those peculiar places back in the day that we used to call shopping malls. Do you guys remember those? They had stores in them and you could walk around through them and you could actually physically pick up stuff and look at it before you purchase it. Do you remember back when we had shopping malls? And the food courts, oh my goodness, the, the food courts were amazing, weren't they? Kids, I'm sorry to say, if you grew up any time after the late 80s and 90s, you're missing out. You are missing out. The nostalgia of the 90s, Nintendo, Nerf, and Nickelodeon, I mean, oh, we had it all. Well, one of the stores that I remember most vividly going into from time to time in the Northgate Mall in beautiful Hickson, Tennessee, where I grew up, was the Thomas Kincaid store. Did the Berkshire Mall ever have a Thomas Kincaid store? I didn't think so. Do you know who Thomas Kincaid is? Well, you're going to find out. Walking into the Thomas Kincaid store, which was located, by the way, just adjacent to the Lamplighter Christian Bookstore. You have to remember, I was raised in the buckle of the Bible Belt down in Tennessee, folks, but I thank God for it. Walking into the Thomas Kincaid store was sort of like walking into the Reading Art Museum. Though here, everywhere you looked, you saw brilliantly colored landscapes and pictures of misty lighthouses and glowing cottages all around. There was almost something tangibly surreal about walking in to the Thomas Kincaid Gallery. It was as if the beauty and the tranquility of another realm was reaching out through the picture frame, just stirring one's affections and inviting you to, to come home. Thomas Kincaid was actually asked about his artwork many times, I'm sure. His artwork has been produced well over 10 million times. And he was asked to defend his wistful sentimentality in his paintings. And his, simple, his reply was as simple as it was illuminating. He said, I like to portray a world without the fall. That was his response. I like to portray a world without the fall. What a concept. What a blessed and glorious hope, which is ours in Christ. This morning, I want to wrap up this short mini-series that I've entitled Every Good Work. And I hope you've enjoyed and been edified by it as much as I have been challenged to labor in it. I want to wrap up by thinking and talking with you from the Scriptures, and specifically from Colossians chapter 3, about something that we don't really give a lot of time and attention to in our circles so often today, and that is the future of our work. The future of our work. So far, we've considered the fruitfulness of our work from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, how God designed us to be His image bearers, to reflect His good and righteous intentions, and to rule as His representatives on a sinless world. We looked at the fruitfulness, but then we, you'll remember, we also looked at, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the futility or the frustration of our work under the sun, of course, from the book of Ecclesiastes. 
We saw how the writer Solomon there uh, gave two chapters that provide us with a sad and sobering commentary on the Genesis 3, 17 and 18 sort of world that we live in now and how sin has made our world and our work frustratingly impermanent and feebly insecure and often altogether unsatisfying. Fruitfulness and futility. But as I said last Sunday, our present futility with work will one day graciously come to an end. This present shadow will not last forever. The Bible holds out the hope, the hopeful promise that all creation, yes, including our own vocations and work, will one day be wonderfully restored and gloriously renewed before the presence of our gracious King Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. We are pilgrims on this present earth, which is passing away according to 1 John 2 verse 17. But eventually we will be pioneers and settlers on the new earth forever. Listen, the 10-day forecast might look gloomy and mostly frustrating in terms of conditions, but our future forecast in Christ is bright, friends. There's a 100% chance that we're going to reign forever with Christ. The English poet Rudyard Kipling, in terrific Kincaidian-like fashion, put it this way in a poem entitled, When Earth's Last Picture is Painted. He states, when earth's last picture is painted and the tubes are twisted and dried, when the oldest colors have faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest in faith, we shall need it, lie down for an eon or two, till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. And no one shall work for the money, and no one shall work for the fame, but each for the joy of the working, and each in his separate star shall draw the thing as he sees it for the good of things as they are. Beloved, once again, the Bible makes it clear, and this has been a a theme of these several weeks, we were made to work. We were made to work. And although we naturally suffer and struggle our way through our daily work, right now, because of the consequences of sin and the rebellion that we've experienced, one bright and shining day, In the future, all creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, as Romans 8 reminds us, Romans 8, 21, obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day our work will be all worship and all wonder without worry and without weakness. That's our future. Mom, hang in there. Teacher, keep going. Business owner, it's going to get better. Keep on trusting Jesus. Keep laboring in whatever you do for his glory because he's working all things out for your good. There's a bright future ahead for us. The prophet Isaiah in the 8th century before Christ came captures something of our corporate glorious future at the end of days or the beginning of that forever day. When he states in Isaiah 65, verse 17 and following, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in the, in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall, listen, build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree shall be like the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, Isaiah writes, or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. That is our future. Our future will be full of wonder. And whether you're ready to hear it or not, it will be full of work too. We await not the removal of our work, as if it, work itself, was somehow a part of God's original punishment to us. But rather, we, not, we do not await the removal of our work, but we wait its complete renewal. Our work will be renewed. In fact, I put it this way, today's work is training for tomorrow's ruling with Christ forever. Folks, it is an unbiblical and frankly a quite depressing idea that what we do now doesn't matter because simply one day we're going to go to heaven when we die. This stuff matters. It's not ultimate but it matters significantly. What you do tomorrow, today, this week, it matters. It matters to God. We need to put all of our hearts into it. What we do now in this life will have implications for how we get to serve and steward and rule and reign in the life to come. If you're in Christ, you'll be there. But how you steward what you've been given now will be reflected in how you rule then. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and other places remind us of that. The Bible teaches that there will be new heavens and a new earth, and that if we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then we, what are we going to do in the future? We will rule. We will reign with Christ forever and ever. Maybe you didn't realize that. You thought maybe you'd just be chilling out on a cloud forever and ever. Friend, we will rule forever. We will explore Forever. We will cast crowns at the feet of Jesus forever. Our eternal destiny is, in fact, an earthly one, but it's a new earth one, an earth that will, be, will have been redeemed and renewed by God and restored forever, an earth that has been reunited with heaven, an earth with all the physical properties that it had at the beginning when God said, Let there be light with one glaring and glorious thing missing, sin. Sin will be gone, but work will remain. Take that mentality into your work tomorrow, into your parenting today. This is a hard transition, but if you would, now 
change mental gears with me all the way from that biblical theology of work to the specific context of Colossians chapter 3. Okay, just switch out the, the men, menu windows in your mind for just a few moments. As I read once again what Dr. John read for us, these awe-inspiring and awfully encouraging words from Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, now with that background, we start to, to flesh out what Paul had in mind here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing, Paul says, that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Some of you will remember that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians, we believe during his first Roman imprisonment, in the early 60s A.D., to a group of new Christians located in the south-central region of Asia Minor, the modern state of Turkey. There's a map, just for your reference. But you might not recognize that from the text of Colossians chapter 2, Paul had never been there. Colossians 2.1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, really, this letter was not just to the Colossians. It was actually a tri-city area of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis that this letter was probably circulated to. He says, for I have struggled for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Evidently, Paul had received a deeply troubling report from his fellow gospel worker, that being a man by the name of Epaphras. We learn of him in Colossians 1 verse 7. This lovely Christian servant, for that is what the name Epaphras means, lovely, had been instrumental in establishing the church at Colossae. Paul had not been there. Having trusted in Jesus only a few years earlier, Epaphras, perhaps during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, maybe that is where Epaphras first heard the name of Jesus and, and gave his life and heart to Christ. He then subsequently goes to visit with Paul in Rome. Paul is under house arrest and he's ministering to Paul's needs, but he's also carrying back an important message about the church back in Colossae. We get the sense that this early Christian leader had confided in Paul about some troubling Christological heresies, heretical positions about the person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. I get that from Colossians 2, verses 6 and verse 9. Some were disputing the full deity of Jesus Christ back in Colossae already, already at this time in church history. Paul states of Epaphras' character in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 12, that Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a fellow Colossian, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras is one of those unheralded heroes of Scripture. 
The point being simply now that this man's ministry to Paul in prison and his message regarding the serious threats back in Colossae provided the occasion or the setting for which Paul wrote this particular epistle. But in my study this week, as I really dug into the text, it wasn't even Epaphras that I really started to marvel over. But I want to point out today concerns another fairly well-known figure whose fingerprints were very likely all over this letter to the Colossians. A man whose heart most likely had skipped a beat when he saw or heard these words read. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. Who am I talking about? In Colossians chapter 4, as part of Paul's final instructions, he begins to close out his book, and the apostle of grace mentions quite intentionally two additional Characters. He mentions other, but two for our purposes this morning, Tychicus and Onesimus. And it's Onesimus that I am particularly concerned with this morning. These two individuals who were entrusted with hand-delivering not just the letter back to the church in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, but also a personal letter to a man, a Christian man, an influential man, a prominent man by the name of Philemon back in this same city. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Look at the text with me. Tychicus, Paul writes, will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Tychicus and Onesimus. We don't know much about them. Here's the key principle at play and what I want you to hang your hat on today, friend. A short reminder follows about Onesimus. That only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take a runaway slave and make him a reconciled heir of eternal glory. Only the gospel. Only the good news of Jesus can transform sinners and empty-handed fugitives and give them eternal inheritance full of ruling and responsibility and eternal righteousness. Only grace can, take a, can make a son out of a slave, an heir out of a servant, and a ruler out of a runaway. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tell us about Onesimus and his inheritance. And by extension, it tells us something about our inheritance as well. His name simply means useful. Onesimus, useful. But he had proven himself to be anything but that to his boss, Philemon. Despite the fact that more than half of the population of the Roman Empire at this time were slaves, Onesimus had evidently never warmed to taking orders 
from his superiors, his superiors. And in the end, he decided to run. However, the Bible tells us, and this is glorious, Romans 8, 28, you know this verse, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You see, Onesimus' running led to his redemption. His running led to his redemption. Friend, God never misses his mark. God never misses his man. The gospel of grace is the best shot this side of heaven. He never misses his mark. You see, somehow, some way, likely in Rome, Onesimus met up with the apostle Paul. He had heard about Jesus' servant's heart to save sinful people, a la Philippians 2, verse 3. And he decided to give his life to Jesus Christ in salvation. This runaway slave was set free from the shackles of spiritual sin. But he was also set free in another way, a significant way and a way that matters. He was now given a newfound freedom and ability to live up to his calling and vocation as a slave in the Roman Empire. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said this to the church. His guidance, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Notice what Paul says here. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You were a bondservant when called. Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. In other words, what is ultimate is not your circumstances or your outward condition. It's what happens in the new heart of a new creation. You see, here's the truth, and this is sobering. Roman law would have permitted Philemon to punish Onesimus severely, even possibly to the point of taking his life. This was no small infraction that Onesimus had committed, and that plays in significantly with what Paul commanded him to do or implored him to do. Paul wrote the letter that now bears the name Philemon in your Bible to appeal to this Christian slave owner, Philemon, and his sense of compassion to welcome back his runaway slave. That's the sole purpose of the book of Philemon. We read, for example, in Philemon 8, Verse 16, accordingly, Paul says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, a play on his name, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this, perhaps, Paul writes, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me as, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Is that not beautiful? Notice that Paul sent Onesimus back, bearing in his hand the letters to his new church, the church at Colossae, and his restored master, a man by the name of Philemon. Must have been a challenging decision, a sobering decision, maybe a terrifying decision, but Onesimus walked in trust. Once again, the transforming power of the gospel demanded that Philemon seek to forgive his runaway slave and that Onesimus willingly repent and return and restart his former employment. The gospel reconciles us to the Lord and it also reorients and reconciles us to one another. But now, and here's part of our takeaway for today, this slave's work had everlasting significance. Whatever you do, Onesimus, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. What is not striking you perhaps there is a slave receiving an inheritance. Do you understand now the significance of what Paul is saying here. You see, Onesimus left Philemon's house desperate and defeated and frankly, destitute. However, he returned to his post spiritually delivered, victorious and now confident in his eternal inheritance. Charles Spurgeon once said, who chides a servant for taking away the first course of a feast when the second consists of far greater delicacies. Who then can regret that this present world passes away when he sees that an eternal world of joy is coming? The first course is grace. The next is glory. And that is as much better as the fruit is better than the blossom. Close quote. When was the last time you caught yourself daydreaming about heaven? Daydreaming about what you'll do and what you'll see and who you'll talk to in heaven. Do you ever think about anything more than what you can see beyond the nose on your face? Something about eternity ought to, like Thomas Kincaid's paintings, call us out and away from what we see here and now. The scripture speaks over and over again of the righteous inheriting the land. The land. And that's the shocking scandal of divine grace. That rebels will become rulers. That sinners will sit on thrones. All because a king came down to become a servant and to die on a cross for his people. 
That's the shocking scandal of grace. We have thumbed our hand at God, and yet He loves us still. And is not just tolerating us. He's creating a mansion for us in heaven. He loves you. He loves you. He wants to fill not only eternity, but the present with significance. Because He loves you. Isaiah 57 verse 13 says this, in terms of our inheritance. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The psalmist likewise agrees in Psalm 25 verses 12 and 13, stating, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Ultimately, friend, you need to understand this. That's talking about Jesus. It's only indirectly talking about us because we are not righteous people on our own. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. He's the one who has the deed to the land because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But when we are found by grace and through faith in Christ, we become beneficiaries and recipients of our eternal inheritance. But you can't bypass Jesus. That's why we must proclaim the gospel. That's why you must believe the gospel in order to receive the feast of heaven. Jesus, the one who we're talking about here, says in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word earth in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew term, Eretz, is is employed 2,500 times in the Old Testament. The Bible is an earthly, or an earthy book, an earthy book. That is the fourth most frequent noun in all of Scripture, earth. So when we falsely believe, probably hearkening back to Greek or Roman contexts, that that the whole point of salvation is to escape physical things. We're not really being Bible people. Because that's not the point of salvation. The point of salvation and redemption is not to remove us. It is to renew all of this. It is to renew it. Physical stuff matters. It matters significantly. Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, he's bringing the kingdom here. He's bringing it here. Verse 12 of Matthew 5 says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Here's what I'm saying, folks. The gospel pulses with a promise that we will rule and we will have authority with Christ physically and permanently upon the earth one day. People today might generally think of an inheritance purely as monetarily. It's some amount of money that you hope a wrench uncle is going to leave you or some parent's going to leave you one day. But biblically, an inheritance rarely had to do with pure money and it often had to do with pure land, with territory, with something physical that you could pass on to your descendants. The earth is the inheritance of the righteous. And Jesus is the righteous one. 
Therefore, we in Christ by faith will inherit the earth. Do you understand now? That's what the Bible's teaching us. With that in mind, I want you to consider just a few more references this morning. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Because I want us to start thinking in categories like, why should I work well for my boss? Why should I, why should I strive and, and, and do all that I do here in terms of eternity? Why does this matter? Daniel 7 verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. We will not become gods. But we will rule and reign with God. Daniel chapter 12. Verses 2 and 3 and also verse 13. Listen to what this says. And many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 13, but go your way till the end, Daniel, and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel, you prove faithful in your day. You will rule greatly in the day to come. Why will we inherit the earth? The answer is because we will rule and we will reign with Christ upon the earth. And you can't rule without a realm. You can't rule without a realm. The whole earth is full of his glory. The earth is the footstool of our great God, and it will be renewed, and he will reign and rule upon the earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 state this, And they sang a new song. It's okay to sing new songs, guys. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall, what? Reign on the earth. You, some of you don't believe that. Some of you really don't believe that. If you believe it, it will transform your life. It will transform your expectation of eternity. You will reign forever. Practice being a good steward of the kingdom now. That's part of the whole point. Revelation 20, verses 4 and verse 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Our future, friend, will be full of ruling, full of reigning, full of responsibility, full of authority, and full of worship to Jesus Christ. It will be wonderfully devoid of all remnant and rebel power of sin. 
We will sit on thrones alongside our blessed Savior and enjoy by grace what is His by right. We will rule. As Adam was to Eve at the beginning of creation, so Christ will be to His Eve, the church in the new creation. Dominion and authority and ruling to the eternal glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be our lot. It will be our inheritance forever and ever. And guys, what I'm saying doesn't even begin to describe what the reality will be for us. Randy Alcorn, as I close in his great, encouraging, and somewhat mystifying book on heaven, titled Heaven, expressed this idea poignantly, almost as picture-perfect as any Thomas Kincaid painting. He said this, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, yet he chooses not to rule the universe alone. He made human beings in his image as creators and as rulers to carry out his divine will. He does not grudgingly pass on to us management responsibilities. On the contrary, he delights to entrust earth's rule to us. We've been born into the family of an incredibly wealthy landowner. There's not a millimeter of cosmic geography that does not belong to him, and by extension to his children, his heirs. Our father has a family business that stretches across the vast universe. He entrusts to us management of the family business, And that's what we'll do for eternity. We will manage God's assets and we will rule his universe, representing him as his image bearers, his children and ambassadors. The promise of a new earth reminds us that the events of human history are not meaningless. Rather, they are headed toward the fulfillment of a divine plan involving a new earth with culture and citizens that glorify him. Close quote. The Bible closes with a shocking and brilliant announcement. Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Beloved, the Bible spurs us along today, saying, For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The present pain and purposelessness that we are all prone to experience, and I do mean all of us, now will turn out to be temporary. Just a vapor. Christ's redemption includes our triumphant eschatological hope, even the resurrection of our bodies and our rule on earth forever with him. Therefore, the gospel invites you men and women, seeking meaning in their own fruitless toil into the work that will matter for all of eternity, the very work of God himself, the work of ruling. Our future hope transforms our present toil, 
knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Listen to me carefully. What will we do forever? We will reign forever with Christ upon the earth. May it be so. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, it is sheer grace, Lord, that we are able to be here this morning, that Onesimus, Lord, was able to be delivered not only from his sin, but his identity, thinking that he was worthless, good for nothing. You, Lord, gave him a divine purpose. That is sheer grace. And Lord, it is sheer grace that not only now in this life do we experience the foretaste of heavenly blessings, but Lord, we await an eternal feast. So Father, help us as we have surveyed over these last several weeks a topic of work. I pray, O Lord, that it will have a lasting impact, a transformative effect, not only for, Lord, our our own hearts, maybe our own homes, for this church, even, Lord, for this county of Berks. If this church and other Christians would, would take seriously, Lord, our calling to be the best of citizens, the most gracious of people, the most committed in our workplaces, heaven will, will press in somehow here and people will see and respond to Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to be your people set apart for your praise. Lord, help us to not try to hold on, though, in a sinful and selfish way to the stuff of earth. But hold on to you and look forward to what we'll do with you forever and ever. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.